He's a retired United States Customs agent. He's a former corrections officer, a basketball player, a basketball coach. As a matter of fact, he's in the Basketball Coaches Hall of Fame, and he's author of the book, Inside Both Courts. He's here to tell a fascinating story. Welcome to the Law Enforcement Today radio show. I'm your host. My name's John J. Wiley. In addition to being a radio broadcaster, I'm a retired police sergeant. For latest news articles and much more, check out our website, letradioshow.com. In the Law Enforcement Today show, we'll be joined by special guests. We'll be talking about their experiences and issues affecting law enforcement officers, first responders, their families, their community, and victims of horrendous crimes. Be sure to like us on Facebook. Our page is Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Check out the daily articles on our website, letradioshow.com. And while you're there, download our free app. If you're on the Clubhouse drop-in audio chat app, be sure to look for me and follow me. My name's John, the letter J, Wiley, W-I-L-E-Y. You can also search for at L-E-T Radio Show. That's John J. Wiley, W-I-L-E-Y, at L-E-T Radio Show on the Clubhouse drop-in audio chat app. If you enjoy the Law Enforcement Today podcast, do me a big favor, tell a friend, and if you're able, if you got a few moments, leave an honest review and rating. But most importantly, tell a friend or two or three. Calling us from South Florida, we have Bob Starkman on the phone. Bob is a retired law enforcement officer. He's also a basketball coach. He's an author, author of the book Inside Both Courts, and not only just a basketball coach, I believe a Hall of Fame basketball coach. Bob, thanks for being guest on the show. Very much appreciated. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be on. Tell us about your book before we talk about you. What's it about? Where can people get it? Well, first of all, it's called Inside Both Courts. It discusses my perseverance of getting a law enforcement job, but prior to that, just starting out, you know, wanting to play high school basketball, playing, wanting to play college basketball, then moving on to the next level, landing up, uh, ending a career while coaching college ball at the same time. And the book is available on Amazon. And it's called Inside Both Courts. I loved basketball as a kid. In high school, if I was a better dribbler, better rebounder, better shooter, and a better passer, I might have been a mediocre player. I was horrible at it. Okay, at least you're honest. Most yeah, well, it's a, it's a fast game. That's the thing. that uh, You watch it on television, Bob, and it doesn't seem like it's that fast. When you're playing a game, man, it moves. It goes so fast. Well, as a coach, I can tell you, it seems to go by so slow. But yes, as a player, it's moving. When you're coaching, it seems forever. Interesting part about you is you really worked hard to get into law enforcement and that carried over into your coaching career. Let's talk about how you got into law enforcement to begin with. Well, I was a college junior and we were spending our summer, some of our friends on the weekends out in the Hampton Bays in Long Island. I got up one morning, I picked up a uh, daily news, the color section, and I was reading an interesting article about a New York City cop named Ralph Friedman. He had a thousand arrests, all kinds of you know accommodations, shootings, or you name it, he had it. I said this really was a pretty interesting article, and it kind of inspired me and some of my other friends to go out and just start taking some police tests. I had Ralph Friedman on the show a long time ago, back when they had the show Street Justice the Bronx. A very colorful figure and a hero. And nowadays, 
if you watch the news, you'll never hear police being talked about in the way that Ralph Friedman was in the article you wrote. It's almost as if they become embarrassed to talk about when a cop stands tall in a gunfight. True, true. And again, you know, the sad part is the way our world is right now. You know, everybody looks at probably people like that as criminals now when it's really the other way around. But, you know, that's part of the, uh, the new generation, I think, the new wave of things that's going on in this world. Well, you are, let's just say, probably of my generation. I remember visiting family in New York and North Jersey in the 70s and 80s. When my grandparents immigrated from Ireland, they settled in North Jersey, New York, Long Island, Queens, that whole area. And I'm going to tell you, in the 70s and 80s, New York City was no joke. It was a very violent, crime-ridden area. Yes, it was rough. I, in those days, uh, I was growing up, I was in college. From uh, you know, I started college in 1974. I actually went into law enforcement in 1980, and it happened to be the maximum security prison. So I, I did see some of the worst of the worst. I'm sure that impacted you too, didn't it? It, it was interesting because... You know, back then in the 70s, we were taking all these police tests and, you know, with the budget crunches and the, there was really no hirings going on. I would just take every test. And the first time I got called, I actually was a bouncer in a bar when I got out of college. The first job I got called for was to be a New York State correction officer. First time they called me, they wanted me to come in during a strike and I wasn't going to do that. And then a couple months later, I got called and we were actually called two day wonders. It was the first time in the history, I believe, of the New York State, you know, correctional services that we were sent to the academy for two days. And as I say, we were fed to the wolves. And unfortunately, oh, well, I guess fortunately, I went to Greenhaven State Prison, which was a pretty rough jail at the time. It was a maximum A security prison. One of the things, my biggest beefs about Hollywood is the way they portray law enforcement officers. And in particular, our corrections officers really get the stigma, and a lot of people seem to believe it, that they are stupid, that they couldn't get another job, and they just took this job so they'd have some sort of security. That's really not the truth, is it? No, it's not, because there's two things that always stand out with me. I've worked with some, you know, it's like anywhere you work, you can have the good, the bad, and the ugly. But, you know, you're in an environment where you have murderers, rapists, you have the worst of the worst. And, you know, you have to count on the guy next to you. And, you know, that you, you have to be pretty smart because, remember, there could be two of us or three of us in a yard with 900 inmates. And you really have to be on your feet. And a lot of people also use corrections as a stepping stone. And there are some that actually make careers out of it, some very close friends of mine. But I, you know, I always said that correction really guided me into my future in law enforcement. It really helped me out so much. I've talked to a lot of people on the show that started off in sheriff's departments where they were required to be in the corrections division for two years, three years before going into patrol. Every one of them said the same thing. It helped shape them in a positive way and gave them an insight into people's behavior and lives that they couldn't have gotten elsewhere. Do you feel the same way? Yeah, correct. Because when I got interviewed for my position as a customs patrol officer, one of the questions they had asked me was, well, we see on your resume, you really have no investigative experience. I had explained to them I was a New York State Correction Officer in one of the toughest jails probably in America at the time. Then I went to the city corrections, and after a short while, I actually was in charge of a housing unit, which had the worst inmates in the city, cop killers. On the other side, we had all the, uh, it was called protective custody, the, the witnesses, you know, it was very interesting. But I, what I explained to them was, that's right, no investigative experience, but... 
dealing with these people, you learn the body language. You learn, you know, just the facial, like the, the, you know, when you're talking to them, you know, their lips are moving, they're shaking. So that tool cannot be taught. It has to be firsthand. When I say taught, you can't go to an academy for that. That was real. And that helped me in my career. And they looked at me and they definitely agreed, you know, dealing with these people with double personalities, you know, multiple charges. You learn about the criminal element. You learn how to speak to them. You learn, you know, everybody's different. And, and that, to me, was one of the, you know, pet peeves that I really felt helped me when I became an investigator with, you know, U.S. Customs. One of the things, I believe, it takes a special person to work in corrections. Not everybody can do it. And I personally, at definitely at this stage of my life, could not do it because, not because of the age, not because that the noise level alone would drive me absolutely out of my mind. How did you handle that? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting, and I talk about it in my book. My first day we walked into, the, the prison was on lockdown. It was just, you know, basically like an uprising. Everybody was locked in, and, you know, it was like looking at a James Cagney movie. You know, the, there's smoke coming out of the cells. The inmates are screaming. It always had that distinct smell. It reminded me of a New York subway. You know, and the noise, you you get used to it. You know, the problem is I found it more in the city jail because in the state jail, you know, they're already convicted. Okay, they're there. You know, they know this is their city, their place to live. In a city jail, they're detainees, so they really have a certain amount of rights. And you talk about noise, you know, you could come home and it's like you're echoing. Like, I remember coming home. You know, like trying to lay down sometimes, you just hear the banging, the clanging, the screaming, the music, CO on the gate. But like anything else, it was a job. And, you know, and at that point, you know, that was going to be my career unless something better came along. So you were that. talking with Bob Starkman. Bob is a retired law enforcement officer, also a Hall of Fame college basketball coach and author of the book Inside Both Courts. This is a Law Enforcement Today show. We got so much to talk about. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. There's only one official Facebook page. What you do, you do a search on Facebook for Law Enforcement Today radio show. Click like and follow. There you'll find updates about upcoming episodes of the radio show. You can contact me. We also find unique, one-of-a-kind editorials and news articles. That is our Facebook page, Law Enforcement Today radio show. Be sure to click like and follow. We'll see you there. This portion of the Law Enforcement Today show brought to you by Switched On Life. The book Switched On, the heart and mind of a special agent, will make you laugh, cry, and sweat with a degree of realism that will leave you stunned. From international drug smugglers, U.S. defense contractors, and CIA going rogue to weapons of mass destruction programs of Iran, China, and Russia. Get more details about the book, the podcast, and more at switchedonlife.com. That's switchedonlife.com. We're to our conversation with Bob Starkman on the Law Enforcement Today show. Bob, in a nutshell, this guy has got quite the resume. He was a corrections officer in New York State. He was a U.S. Customs officer. He was an investigator, a law enforcement officer, a basketball player in college, a college basketball coach, Hall of Fame basketball coach, and author of the book Inside Both Courts. Bob, thanks so much for being a guest on the show. Very much appreciated. I'm still happy to be here. You were talking about earlier uh, about, you, you read an article 
about Ralph Friedman, and you were kind of blown away by his achievements and and decided you want to pursue a career in law enforcement. And back at that time, I remember, well, a lot of agencies weren't hiring because of budgetary things, so you went into corrections. Uh, you started off with New York State, is that correct? Yes, New York State. Then I uh, went to New York City corrections. They paid more, closer to home. And actually, I was there about a year and a half, I got a lateral transfer, I didn't even know it existed, to the New York City Sheriff's Office, which it was on parity with the other uniformed services, so I figured that was my goal, you know, I was going to use that to get into the police department, because I always wanted to be a New York City cop. And uh, after going from there, I finally got called by U.S. Customs. So why did you want to be a cop? Well, I, it, you know, also I worked in the PAL when I was going through college, and we were, uh, the PAL headquarters were down in Manhattan, 34 and a half East 12th Street, which was the runaway squad. Between that, you know, I, I told you reading the Ralph Friedman article really inspired me about, you know, that job. And just being around cops, I had a lot of friends, older friends, that friends were cops, and, you know, just, we just decided, and when I say we, a lot of my friends, we would just take these tests. But that's just something I wanted to do. It, you know, it always reminded me of playing sports. One of the things I really like about it, and this is a, a big misconception a lot of people get, they'll see that a uh, police department wears the same uniforms, has a similar appearance and hair and everything else, and that we're a homogenized group. The reality is we have people from every walk of life, every religious background, every sexual orientation. Even back in the 80s, we had everybody. Right. Well, I also believe, I think from our generation, meaning like when we were taking a test in the 70s and the early 80s, I think people really wanted, when I say the job, a law enforcement job or a fireman, because that's what they wanted to do. That's something they wanted. I see and I talk to a lot of younger kids now. I think some just take it more of a macho thing. I got a badge. I got a gun. Well, that's not what it's about. You know, to me, it's, I, I always like dealing with people, especially being an athlete my whole life. You know, I, I, I enjoyed, you know, uh, especially, like I said, when I got to customs, that was just a, a whole different level than the prison system. The prison system was basically the minor leagues for me to get to the major leagues. And I'm not discrediting any correction officer because I had that job and it's a tough job and i work with some great people like i said earlier they have my utmost respect those those men and women they really got a tough job and one is you think law enforcement's tough being a cop is tough the corrections officers really got it tough because they don't seem to get the respect they deserve from anybody so i i do appreciate all that they do you made the transition from and by the way when early in the conversation uh, Bob was mentioning PAL, that's Police Athletic League. So you were kind of attracted, you were an athlete, and you liked dealing with kids and athleticism as well? Yes, I like being around it. You know, it's it just something I enjoyed. You know, I always thought I was going to be a gym teacher till I realized, like, I couldn't pass kinesiology in college and some of these other ones, so I switched my majors, like, three times. I thought that's something I wanted to do. But recreation, and, and you know, I, I enjoyed that. And, again, being around cops really motivated me and inspired me. Well, I'm glad you did your college bit. Me, I, I went to college. I majored in drinking and had a minor in sociology. So I didn't last very long. You eventually transitioned into customs. Was that a big shock for you? Well, what happened was, again, my, my, my dream was always to be, always to be a uh, New York City cop. And I remember I was on vacation once. We were coming back from San Francisco. We were going to go visit my friend Phil Fontanetta, who was an L.A. cop, and my buddy Miles from New York, who was a Border Patrol agent. We were going to meet them in Southern California. 
My wife and I were driving. It was probably July of 83, June of 83, somewhere around there. And we stopped in Santa Barbara for the night. And I remember going into the hotel and I turn on the TV and I'm watching a Geraldo Rivera special with U.S. Customs in Miami jumping out of these Cobra helicopters chasing smugglers. I'm like, wow, I totally forgot that I took the customs test back in 78. And, you know, moving forward and, you know, I come back from vacation and it was so ironic and that's when I got the phone call that Customs was going to hire me. So it kind of was an omen. It was just so ironic how that happened. There was a lot of sex appeal to what the Customs did. And, of course, that's what I saw. And I'm sure that's what you saw, like in a Geraldo Rivera special, uh, the fast boats, the airplanes. And it was Miami Vice on steroids. But that really wasn't the job that you did, was it? Oh No, actually, it's funny because most people... They have the, the uh, perception that everybody with customs works at the airport. I was a street agent. Now, I started out in New York as a street agent. You know, at, at the time, I was what they call the customs patrol officer. So we weren't an agent yet. So when I got, you know, after I came out of the academy, you know, I started and uh, I, we were working at the time we were assigned to Kennedy Airport. And we would do what they call the secondaries. The inspectors would do inspections. And, you know, if we thought somebody was good, we would bring them in, talk to them, you know, perform a custom search. Uh, if a fugitive was arrested or what they call a controlled delivery, when, you know, the inspectors made a uh, seizure, we would go on it with the agents. So we were kind of like the patrolmen. And how I equated it, the agents, the special agents were like the detectives. You know, so we started with that. It's funny you talk about that Miami Vice, and you know that was like everybody wanted Miami Vice. You know, that's when it was you're watching that, and it really what I was doing. I really wasn't happy. Uh, I had made a good friend at the academy when I spent for three and a half months in wonderful Glencoe, Georgia, and he said, "Anytime you want to come to Miami, give me a call." Well, we were on an undercover operation. And it really wasn't what I thought it was to be. And then years later, I learned it really wasn't run the way it should have been. And I gave a call to Bobby Benevente, who was working in Miami. I said, hey, I want to come down. So I went down with my old partner at the time, Nick Jacobellis. We just kind of did our own little, you know, we went to work with some guys. I said, man, this is what I want. Came back. I forgot to tell my wife, who was pregnant at the time, by the way, uh, we're transferring to Miami. <laughs> you forgot to tell her? Yeah, well, in a sort of. You know, it wasn't probably the best way to do it, but she was pregnant at the time with our first kid in route, you know. And uh, August of 85, I came to Miami. Came down here thinking, I'm from New York. You know, my 30 years I lived in New York. I'm going to come to Miami. I'm going to learn the job. I'm going to try to get promoted. And I'm going to come back to New York in two years. Never happened. I mean, I just had such a great time working here. You know, that was what they called the cocaine cowboy days. Uh, it was just, it was unbelievable. It, it, I can't even, you know, like, that's why I wrote my book. Like, it was just, and again, it wasn't about me. It was about we. This was all teamwork, you know, working with guys and other agencies. It was just, it was unbelievable. It was a fascinating time. And honestly, oh. fascinating is in... You know, wonderful. It was a very violent time, a lot of challenges. We've had guests on a show that were Metro Dade at the time that went through all that, uh, a lot of violence. And we'll talk more about that when we return in just a few moments. Our guest is Bob Starkman. He's a retired U.S. Customs agent. He's also a basketball college Hall of Fame coach and author of the book Inside Both Courts. This is the Law Enforcement Today Show. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. All too often, we find ourselves getting asked, where can I find other great podcasts? Do you have any suggestions? Because of this, we decided to create our own network of podcasts here on Law Enforcement Today. 
You can access top podcasts about law enforcement on our website and free app. Head to letradioshow.com, click the Be Heard tab, and there you will find our network link where we will continue to add podcasts from first responders and more. Remember, that's letradioshow.com to find out more information about law enforcement today, our podcast network, and to download our free app, letradioshow.com. Back to our conversation with Bob Starkman on the Law Enforcement Today show. What a character. What a resume. He is a former corrections officer. He is a retired U.S. Customs agent. He is a college basketball Hall of Fame coach. Also author of the book, Inside Both Courts, which we'll talk about in a few moments. Before we went to break, Bob, you started talking about you transitioned from New York City down to Miami, and your plan was to do like two years and eventually go back to New York, uh, but you stayed. And that was 1985, which according to the way people think in this part of South Florida is if you've been here that long, you're native. Well, I'm always going to be a New Yorker. I mean, people, my kids, they were all born in Florida. They said, I talk funny. I said, no, you talk funny. My New York accent hasn't left me. So I'm always a New Yorker in heart. But, you know, if I was here applying for citizenship, they would probably tell me I was a Floridian, but I'm going to stick with them. Still a New Yorker. My partner, Robert Greenberg uh, from Law Enforcement Today, who is an uh, active duty uh, law enforcement officer here in South Florida, moved down here from Brooklyn, I think, when he was 15, and he still has the Brooklyn, New York accent. And he's oh. in his late 50s. And I believe I've met him. I know he works in a small department in Miami, right? Absolutely. Hey, Good guy. I've met him. I've met him before. He actually used to host a show with me in the early days, and right. he real quickly realized that radio was not his strength, um, and, and his other his talents are, are better applied elsewhere. Okay. So you moved to Miami, and we were talking again about the break. I, I remember being detailed at DEA uh, and having to come down to Miami, like 87, 88, somewhere around then, uh, and I'd see the customs go fast boats and everything else. And by the way, when I was detailed at DEA, you flew into the airport, Went to the rent-a-car place. They gave us a rent-a-car. We stopped by the DA office. They gave us radios and a map. Said, good luck to you. And we're like, I don't even know where I am. Uh, but that uh, there was a certain mystique. And we joked about it with the, the Miami Vice type appeal to customs at that time. Did you experience that or no? Well, it's funny because a very good friend of mine, Tommy O'Keefe, who's a Metro Dade narcotics detective, we became very close friends. And... He was really tight with Michael Talbot from Miami Vice. He played Zwitek, and he actually portrayed, Zwitek actually kind of portrayed O'Keefe's actions as a cop. So I actually got to know all the Miami Vice characters. I was at the 100-episode party. I used to go out with him a lot. But me personally, I'm a blue jean sneaker and T-shirt guy. You'll never see me in purple shirts. And maybe I wore a Hawaiian shirt once in a while. But, you know, that mystique and... You know, I, I don't know. I, I was, you know, at six foot five. I was about 270 back then. I'm not the easiest guy to stand out. So, you know, if I was walking around like Don Johnson, you know, with white pants, no socks, and slip-on shoes and a sport jacket, first of all, I would have been soaking wet from sweating. But I, don't, I, I didn't fit that role, if you know what I mean, you know. And also, they portrayed uh, policing as a lot of violence, a lot of shooting and all that stuff. And then they'd say something sarcastic, something like Clint Eastwood, uh, a funny, real quip, and then he'd be fine. And that's not the reality of what the job is like. Most cops I know never even pull their gun except the range. Yeah, uh, I, it was pretty wild down here. Um, 
You know, there's been instances, but yes, that that's the Hollywood, the you know, the the glory, uh, you know, blood and guts. And there's only one thing that I really always took from the Miami Vice show that I always kept in the back of my mind. When I first came down here in '85, that's when I had a lot of the problems with the Miami River cops. Even our agency at the time, DEA, a lot of them, local agencies and federal agents had a lot of corruption problems. But Don Johnson once said in one of the shows, "You can't tell the good guys from the bad guys." And I always kept that in the back of my mind because that was so true. Was there an incident in your career that stands out in customs that it's like people just wouldn't understand? Yes. And actually, it was uh, probably the reason I retired uh, when we had the merger, when we became ICE, when we merged with immigration, you know, immigration customs. We were doing a controlled delivery, and that means that somebody was caught bringing, you know, smuggling, it was heroin into the country. We were going to make a delivery, which is called a controlled delivery. And the whole thing just wasn't right. And at the time, I had, what, 23 years in, so I probably had more time than anybody out in that group. And just without getting into really details, it was really bad. And a guy's about to get away with the heroin. I pull up. I cut him off. He's revving his engine. I tell my partner at the time, you get the passenger. I'm going to get the driver. He's revving his engine out of nowhere. Another federal agent, not from my agency, is pointing a machine gun at me. He wasn't at the briefing. I didn't know who he was. I'm thinking I'm going to get shot or run over. I didn't know what to do. I got the guy out of the car. I arrested him. I will tell you that was the longest drive I ever took home from my uh, Miami airport. That's where the case was, outside of the airport, to Broward County. Normally it took me 25 minutes. It seemed like it took me seven hours. And the next morning I got up and I put my paperwork in. And that following January 3rd, I retired. You said enough's enough. That's it. Well, I, I was in a lot of close things from jail, working in jail, to even working in the street. But you know what? I had enough time and age. You know, my age was right to retire. I could have gone another five years. I'm just saying, you know what? This was way too close for comfort. And I really scared me and i don't get scared too often this really just sunk in me and unfortunately that that happens we've had law enforcement officers shot by their own they use the term friendly fire and Mm -hmm. here's the thing there's there's a young cop i didn't know him in baltimore that was working plain clothes and it's a bad situation and he got shot by three other police and was shot and killed they didn't know who he was and i feel horrible for the officer who was killed. I feel horrible for his family, and I feel really bad for the officers that wound up killing right. him because they right. didn't set out to do that. No. It happened in New York a while ago, like three years ago, I think, three guys in an anti-crime. A guy was wrestling with a perp on the street, and uh, they were tossing and turning, and they thought that the perp had the cops going when he was fighting, and it turned out it was you know friendly fire, and that's it's just horrible, you know. Thank God I was never involved with anything like that. I'm very fortunate in my career. I never uh, killed anybody. No one died and no police died around me. I have one good friend who was killed in the line of duty a couple months after I transferred. And I'm still, I don't, I, there's an overused phrase, haunted. I don't think that's correct. I'm still influenced by a lot of what I experienced in law enforcement, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And that, and you have to, you know, uh, it, it's you have to look at things like, well, there's a reason. I always believe there's a reason something happens, and there's a reason that it didn't happen. So thank God, you know, on a, on a good note, some things didn't happen. You know, and you were very lucky, like a lot of us. That's the thing. 
I've talked to many guests. They said, we all knew the risks. We all knew right. that bad stuff could happen. But if we actually thought about it all the time, we'd never get, uh, we'd never leave the station house. We'd never go on the street. We'd never handle calls for service. So I developed a mindset, like many people, that this wouldn't happen to me. When I was young, it was, you know, I'm six foot, uh, 210 pounds, and I'm bulletproof. When I was older, it was like, there's too many close calls, and I'm injured. Well, yeah, and that's, you know, it's funny because, um, I'm 6'5", I'm a pretty big guy, I'm a, now I'm not, not as big, but, um, you know, I was about 265, 270, I was big, and it, it, it always seemed like, even in jail, <laughs> all the inmates, thank God, they all want to challenge the big guys, always the littlest guy, it's like the little, you know, the little that wants to go after the pit bull, you know, and it's like, I didn't like being a pit bull, but, you know, you learn, but it's, you know, you always think, too, I always thought, I, you know, in your mind, like, I never looked at it, like, I looked at it like it was, you know, like we were invincible, and, you know, and until something happened, you say, you know what, that could have been me. And it kind of puts you back on, you know, on a plane, even ground. You know, like, I don't, I, you, if you spoke to 50 cops, I guarantee you 48 of them always thought at one point in their career they were invincible. Absolutely. And, and, and I think the other two are lying if they say different. And eventually they, they get the crushing reality that they're not invincible, that really right. bad stuff does happen. And a lot of the people that we worked with uh, did not survive. And a lot of them, right. once they retired, died very young. We are talking with Bob Starkman. Bob is a retired U.S. Customs agent, former corrections officer, a basketball, college basketball Hall of Fame coach and author of the book, Inside Both Courts. When we return, we're going to talk about his transition from law enforcement to coaching and eventually writing the book. Don't go anywhere. We will be right back. Remember in the beginning, when you first started to build a life for you and your family, you never imagined it would come to this. Instead of living your dreams, you're living with debt. In fact, it's smothering you. Now there's a way you can take back control with one simple call. If you owe $10,000 or more in credit card debt, you qualify to receive a free, no-obligation consultation on how to get rid of that debt for good. Call the Debt Helpline now. We work on your behalf to reduce your debt. We specialize in credit cards, retail store cards, and medical bills. One simple call is all it takes to get the ball rolling to a debt-free life. Stop living with debt and start living your dreams. Call the Debt Helpline now. 800-709-4389-800-709-4389-800-709-4389. That's 800-709-4389. This is Law Enforcement Today's show. Joining us, we have Bob Starkman calling us from South Florida. Bob is a retired U.S. Customs agent, former corrections officer, also a U.S. college basketball coach and member of the Basketball Hall of Fame for coaching, often explain that and author of the book, Inside Both Courts. You've got this remarkable career, and I, we could talk police work all day long, but there's a big transition for you. Somewhere along your career, you started in basketball, went into law enforcement, and then began to transition into coaching basketball. How did that happen? Well, what people don't realize until they read the book, I started coaching in 1997 while I was an agent. See, a lot of people don't know that. And I would go from a drug bust to a practice. I would go from a game to maybe a surveillance, and it was, I don't know how I did it looking back. I, you know, I, I don't know how I did it. And that, that goes back from 1997. 
I retired from customs in 2008, and I'm still coaching. So I'm on, you know, it's been a long run. But at the time, I thought it was wrong. I was the only part-time junior college coach around. I was coaching at Broward College. Looking back, there was no way I would have had, you know, both careers going because, of course, my bread and butter was my customs job. But it was just something I loved, and I just continued to coach. I, I made it happen. You know, I was able to make it happen. Looking back still, I, I don't know how I did it, but I was able to handle two jobs. How did your family handle you working two jobs? Well, you know, my, my kids, it's funny. Uh, when I first started, they all played sports at one time. My daughter would come to my games and, you know, she would help out. My middle son, he would do videotaping. When my youngest son got older, he would do videotaping. I would come home. I remember driving home. I was in a, an academy. I had to go for like a two-week training academy. I was coming home from Georgia. I got pulled over by the trooper. I said, listen, you're not going to believe this. I said, I got my daughter's basketball game. I haven't been home in two weeks. He let me go. It's like I always manage somehow. I miss hardly anything, and I don't know how I did it. Like I'm looking back now. I guess uh, time management, you know, was very good to me then. I don't know what I'm doing now. There are a lot of guys on the show. I say, guys, I know someone's get upset. That means men and women in, in the world I come from, and most law enforcement people talk the same way. So a lot of the men and women that are in law enforcement do a lot of activity with youngsters in coaching whether it be volunteer or working as a part-time job, it's almost part of their nature. Correct. I actually, you know, when I, prior to getting hired in, you know, as a, the assistant coach, that's why I started out at Broward College, I would coach my all my kids. I would coach them in, you know, in, in basketball. Uh, I did everything. And even when I was coaching in college, I still coached my kids. I always, you know, I was able to work it out somehow. And maybe I should, like, put a patent on that. I might be able to... Uh, Turn that into something, you know? Yeah, make it a bottle it and sell it for like a, replace all these exactly. energy drinks. Exactly. Yeah. I've had people on a show that um, were involved heavily involved with the Police Athletic League in New York. Uh, were involved in NYPD boxing, and had people like Mike Tyson come through their camps and work with. And some some of these people were young kids that were skating and getting in serious trouble, and they had an option of. Which way do I go in life? And really, the coaches and the volunteers in sports had a big impact on helping them choose the right way. Yes, and and it's something I discussed uh, with some other another show I was on, and I I just feel like you know me personally, I, I think our athletes have to do a better job. I think uh, you know with this world with the protesting and the kneeling and you know I, i'm i'm against the kneeling i'm not against you know if you have if you're going to protest there's a way to do it do it in the right way and i i think you know like as, as a kid growing up you looked up to these athletes now i think athletes have to do a better job because they could be so influential teach the right way you know what i mean teach the right way how to go about things i would teach my athletes you know my student athletes i said listen you get pulled over by the police you keep your mouth shut, put the hand on the wheel, turn your, you know, your light on. The cop gives you any trouble, whomever, take down his badge number. Don't be disrespectful because you're going to lose. We all know, you know, there's a lot of jerks in this world on both sides of the fence. But I think kids, you know, the problem now is I always say kids need to be told what they need to hear, not what they want to hear. And I think, you know, I think our athletes could do a better job now. I think when growing up, PAL, we had the 
um, after-school centers, the evening community centers, the CYO basketball, the Jewish Center League basketball. These were people that they were good influences on you. You know, and I think we've gotten away with that. You know, we've gotten away from it. Excuse me. I agree with you 100%. And a, a big part of it is people don't really understand the deep connection to the communities that our law enforcement people have. They, they sometimes view them, and I think the news media, Hollywood has a lot to do with this, they view them as an occupying force instead of viewing them as someone who's a protector that actually lives and works and breathes that community. And they come home at night to their kids just like everybody else, you know. And the the problem is, too, like, you know, with the social media, I'll tell kids, and even when I talk either at a basketball camp or anywhere, I'll pick up my phone. I said, this is your worst enemy. You know, it's your worst enemy. It could be your best, but people make it, the, you know, your worst, whether it's sending a basketball video of you taking the same shot seven times. I'm like, you scored 21 points on one shot. Or, you know, a kid, kid's applying to be a cop. And there's a kid that I'm trying to help out. And I'm telling them, you know, you go on your social media page, and there you are in a club drinking. You think somebody's going to do your background? It's not going to pull up your Instagram account, your Facebook account. They're going to see that. Well, I'll delete it. Well, you may delete it, but they still could pull it up. And, you know, that's the problem. Kids need to hear, again, what they, you know, what, what they need to hear. You know, most kids, well, oh, no, it's cool. No, it's not cool. That could, you know, potentially hurt you in getting a, a job. It could keep you from accomplishing your dreams. Uh, exactly. And do you feel that your law enforcement background and career makes you a better coach and, and better at relating to young people? Yes, I think my upbringing, the, you know, how I was raised, uh, I think the law enforcement, playing ball, coaching, how it all helped me was I, I tell people I equate both jobs. So in law enforcement, you know, you want to go out and have a good time. When I say, you know, enjoy your job, arrest a few people, don't get hurt, do it the right way. I never lied in court. You know what I mean? I, I never abused anybody. Basketball, I never cheated. I taught hard work. You know what I mean? I, I didn't do things that were illegal. And I think it's all a reflection of both of my careers. And just so people don't think, I'm not in the Naismith Hall of Fame. I'm in the Florida Junior College Hall of Fame and my Broward College Hall of Fame, but it's still a Hall of Fame. But I just want to get that people, I don't want to think that I'm up there with, you know, the Bobby Knights and the Red Owlbacks and all the other great people. Is that right, is, is right if I think of you that way, that you're like up there with those guys? Well, I'd like you to think of me that way, but there's <laughs> others that may think I think that way. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why if you're like me, you have a spouse that will knock you down to size. Uh, anytime I feel like I get too big for my britches, I've got someone at home that, that right sizes me. Well, you know, Stan, I have a six foot ten son. I have a six foot three son, a six foot one daughter, a six foot five son-in-law, and my wife is five eleven. But I'm still six five, so there's a couple of them I got to worry about. You know, this real quickly. Let's talk about your book. What prompted you to write it? Well, I wanted a years ago. I, I always used to take pictures of drug seizures and arrests. And when I was a correction officer, we didn't have the you know the the access to the phones, we never had that. And I always had some extra pictures or from a Polaroid. And I, I would just write notes and I stopped. And, you know, 13 years ago, I retired and I was writing and I stopped. I write and I stopped. Uh, my son, Rob, who owns a big company, Rock'em Apparel, says to me, you're not going to do it. You're not going to do it. Kept on pushing me, kept on pushing me. I went to Joe Pistone, who was Donnie Brasco in the real world on, undercover. He told me an easy way to do it because I was typing. And every time I was typing, I would delete something by accident. I'd lose the page. He said to me, listen, take a you know pad and pencil, write it down. Boom. You make a mistake, you erase it, cross it out. 
I did that. I would do about eight pages a day, one hour, two hour. The former player of mine, Joe Lopez, was playing professionally in Spain. I would scan it to him. He would type it up, send it back to me. I hired a, an editor, and Joe was my Joe Pistone. He would go over it and say, hey, you need this. You need that too much, too little. So, you know, that was my little circle, and that was really a lot of push. You know, it, it, was, it was, you know, I was getting educated. I had my son that kept on pushing me because I didn't want to hear him talk anymore, so I finally finished it. But over the pandemic, I thought it was a good time. And I think the way the world is, my book talks about perseverance, working hard, you know, getting your goals done, and, and doing something, you know, and, and that, that's, and again, my biggest thing is it's about we, not me. And I think people, you know, would, are, would be interested in reading that. And it's called Inside Both Courts, and it's available on Amazon and probably wherever books are sold. No, actually just Amazon at this time. Amazon. Let's work on getting it wherever books are sold. Bob, thanks so much for being a guest on the show. Thanks for all you've done. Thanks for your service, and all is very much appreciated. Uh, it's a pleasure to be on here. Stay safe be healthy there's only one official facebook page what you do you do a search on facebook for law enforcement today radio show click like and follow there you'll find updates about upcoming episodes of the radio show you can contact me we also find unique one-of-a-kind editorials and news articles that is our Facebook page, Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Be sure to click like and follow. I'd like to thank our guests so much for coming on the Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. The Law Enforcement Today Radio Show is a nationally syndicated radio show broadcast on numerous stations once a week and growing. If you enjoyed the podcast version of the show, please do me a big favor. Tell a friend. I'll be back in just a couple days with a brand new episode of the Law Enforcement Today radio show and podcast. Until then, this is John J. Wiley. See ya. See ya.